0: This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. You can find it on page 903 of the Bibles in the pews in front of you or under your seats. that's John chapter 16, starting in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world.
1: Good morning. It's Good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, before we pray and jump into the text together, I just want to give you uh, a brief heads up as to where we're going to be for the rest of the month of July. Uh, this morning, we're going to be concluding our time in the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, so we've been here for the last 10 or 11 weeks together, walking through Jesus' teaching to his disciples in John 14 to 16. It's been a really wonderful and fruitful time for us as a church family. Uh, For the next four weeks, we're going to do what we do often in the summer here at Redeemer Fellowship is preach um, in the Psalms. And so next week, Ricky will be up here, uh, and then we're going to have two weeks with uh, pastors of ours from our Johnson County congregation that are going to come and bless you all with the Word of God. So Andrew Brantley will be here and Wyatt Bury will be here. And then Ricky will close out uh, July, the last Sunday in July, and we're going to be in the Psalms for those four weeks. So that's just a a tradition that we have. It matches up kind of with the calendar rhythms and the the movement that happens a lot during the summer allows us to take a breather together as a family from a a focused series, but um, drill into this worship book of the church and look at different themes there uh, for us. So that's going to be the next several weeks. Uh, And then this morning, we're going to spend our time in this last verse of John 16, bringing our time in the Upper Room Discourse to a close uh, with Jesus's words here, this wonderful exclamation point at the end of the sentence, so to speak. So I'm going to read it again for us, and then we'll pray and dive into the text itself. So Jesus says, I've said these things to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning. We come to you because of his gracious sacrifice. We come to you because he has overcome the world, because he alone was able to stand in this world and live with faithfulness before you. He alone was able to bring the power of the kingdom into this world. He alone was able to silence the mouth of the accuser. God, so we come to you because of him. And we ask you this morning as we look at this text, as we draw our time in this series to a close, I ask this morning that you would come and encourage our hearts. God, would you show us Jesus this morning, the conquering one, the victorious one, the one who right now lives and reigns with you at your right hand, far above everything, every power, every principality, every dominion, the one who has conquered sin, death, and the grave forever? God, would you show us him? Would he be magnified and glorified in our midst by the Spirit this morning? Would you grant us eyes to see? Would you grant us hearts to receive and to respond? God, would you give us your peace? We ask you in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So as I said, this is going to bring our time in the Upper Room Discourse to a close. And as we've walked through this, John 14 to 16 are these beautiful chapters that lay out these dynamic and uh, beautiful truths that Jesus lays out before his disciples one after the other that are meant to stabilize and secure their hearts in the midst of the trouble that's awaiting them, the trouble that's just on the horizon for them, both in his death that's going to happen within the next 24 hours for them, and in the time when he ascends to be with the Father and he's no longer with them. And the troubles and the crisis that they will face In those moments, Jesus lays out for them these remarkable truths that are meant to stabilize and keep their hearts in the midst of the trials of the world. And we've talked about again and again how our hearts as we walk through this world are like the disciples, tempted to become overwhelmed with and weighed down with trouble and sorrow and hardship and despair as we walk through the difficulties of this world. And what I want us to see this morning as Jesus brings this all to a close and puts this exclamation point on the end of his sermon is... What Jesus does here is he just reminds them of a few things and then declares to them that the only way that they can have confidence and certainty in the promises and the protection that he has invited them to experience in him is because he alone is the one who has conquered the world. He alone is victorious. He alone is the overcomer. And so this morning, what we're going to do to get there is we're going to look at the three things Jesus lays out in this text. The first thing he lays out is he reminds them one more time as he's done again and again through this sermon, the purpose of why he's speaking this to them. We're going to remember why is it that Jesus is telling us all these things? Why does he, on the night that he's about to go to his death, gather his disciples close to them and sow these truths into their hearts so that they wouldn't be troubled? We're going to see the purpose that Jesus has for us in, in reminding us and telling us these words. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. And this promise is a painful one. It's not one that we probably all want to run to and lay hold of. It's a promise that we're going to have hardship in the world. Jesus doesn't shy away from or uh, get skittish at the reality that life is going to be marked with difficulty and hardship and pain and sorrow for those that follow him. And he promises them that this is how their experience in the world will be. But then how he closes is he tells them the power that he has over the world that they will experience and we will experience because we are joined with him. So we're gonna look at those three things and walk through this together. So the purpose that Jesus tells them yet again, he demonstrates one more time Why am I telling you all of these things? Why have I taken pain and labor to share with you all of these truths that I'm going to go away and I'm going to send you the Spirit and I'm not going to leave you as orphans and you're going to be in me and I'm going to be in you and the Father's love that he loves me with is going to be upon you. We hear all these things and we see once again why Jesus is telling us these things. Yeah. Amen. Praise the Lord. So we hear once again why Jesus tells us all these things. If you have your notes, look with me at Roman numeral two, letter A. So Jesus closes his teachings to his disciples by reminding them the reason that he's spoken to them all of these things. Again, they're going to face his disciples who he's speaking to are going to face difficulty in both the near and far horizons, right? His crucifixion is going to put them face to face with this remarkable difficulty of sorrow and loss and missed expectations and misunderstandings. And when Jesus ascends to the father, they will walk through the difficulties of what it means to follow him as his ambassadors in the world. He has intentionally and purposefully taught them in order that their hearts would remain steadfast in the midst of all of the pressures that they're about to face. From the opening exhortation of the sermon, Jesus oriented the purpose of this teaching so that their hearts would be not overcome by trouble. He related this teaching to experiencing the peace that he would give them through the coming of the Spirit. Look at John 14, verse 1 and 27. This is the opening sentence of this sermon. Jesus exhorts his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He's just told Peter that you're, you're about to walk through a moment when your failure is going to come face to face with you. You're going to see how absolutely and utterly weak you are when you, by the end of this evening, deny me three times. And then he speaks into this moment and he tells him, don't let your hearts be weighed down with trouble though. Don't let trouble overwhelm you and weigh you down as you walk through these difficulties. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then as he's laid out several beautiful truths, he reiterates this again. Peace I will leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. So Jesus again tells us the purpose of why he is telling his disciples all of these things. And we can, as those who have received this by the inspiration of the Spirit, as we read through this, we can understand that the purpose of these words in John's gospel are the same for us. They are meant to provide stability and security for our hearts as we walk through this world that is marked by sorrow and pain and disappointment and loss and mis. Expectations and awareness of our own failures and tribulations and trials, as we walk through that world and we experience the temptation for our hearts to be bogged down with despair and anxiety and fear, we too are invited to remember these words that Jesus gave us as the means to experience his peace in the midst of this world. So let her see, Jesus gave means by which the disciples are to engage their troubled hearts in the midst of the world. It was to believe, believe in God and believe in him. He says, hey, don't let your hearts be taken away by trouble. And we all know what that feels like, right? When we walk through the difficulties of the world and we feel the, the current of anxiety and fear and despair pull on us. Jesus says in that moment, don't let your heart be weighed down by the troubles of this world. Rather, rest all of your faith in God and in me. And then he gives them all of these truths to put in our hearts as a means by which to engage him and believe in him. The beautiful thing is that we're not left to ourselves in the face of the dynamics of hardship and pressure in this life. Jesus gives us storehouses of truths that we are to seek to lay hold of in the midst of our troubles. He promised that the disciples would receive a helper, the Holy Spirit that would be with them. The Spirit would unite them to Jesus in order that they would experience the full measure of God's life, power, and blessing. And it's in this place, united with Jesus, that we are said to experience, that's supposed to say peace, not union, sorry about that, the peace of God. Look again at verse 33, this is what Jesus says, and I want you to notice this, because he's going to give you two locations that you walk in. The first is, I've said these things to you, why? So that in me, Jesus says, you might have peace. Right, So one of the things that the Spirit does when he's given to believers to be joined with us is to take us and unite us to Christ. And the un- union with Christ is this doorway into experiencing the life and the joy and the fullness of God. And one of the ways we experience that as we walk through this world is by experiencing the peace of Christ. This is a profound aspect of what it means to be united with Jesus that would come with the sending of the Spirit. Paul later tells us that the experience of peace comes to a heart that comes before the Lord in a spirit of thanksgiving and supplication. Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So to have a heart guarded by peace is the opposite of what we saw earlier in John 16, which Jesus says, I'm telling you all these things so that you won't become offended. I don't want you to experience bitterness and offense and despair when you walk through this. So I'm telling you all it in advance so that how you walk through it will be in a posture of faith and belief in me and I will dispense my peace upon you. So Jesus promised that these words were given to his disciples that they might experience his joy. So we engage our hearts. This is what we've talked about again and again. I just want to remind us as we come to a close in this series. We engage our hearts through the hardships of this life. By coming to the Lord, communing with him in union and fellowship with him around the truths that he's given us. And what this looks like in a really practical way is you take the truth that he has given and you simply thank him for it and ask him to reveal it to you more. God, thank you that you have sent the spirit to be united with me. That I am united with you right now by faith. Thank you that that is true. Would you make that truth more alive to my heart? Would you impress my mind and my emotions and empower my will in this world that that would be true of me, uh, that I would be aware of that truth as it is true right now? Would you make known, we see in, you know, John 15, 9, Jesus says, as the father loved me, so I loved you, right? When you're experiencing the temptation of your heart to be weighed down with anxiety and despair and sorrow, what would it look like for you in that moment to come before the Lord and say, God, right now, the love that the father has for the son, the son has set upon me. Thank you that that is true. No matter what I feel right now, no matter what my hardship and my circumstance is telling me is true, the truth is the love of God is set upon me. Thank you that that is true. And would you make me more alive to that truth? Would you make that truth more alive to me, More make me more aware of that in this moment? Come to him in a spirit of thanksgiving and ask him to reveal that to you. And as you do that, over time, the peace of God will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. Now, again, it's not like a one-for-one thing, like you come one time and he exchanges it for you in that moment. But if you do that over time, renewing your mind with his word, thanking him for the truth of his word, asking him to enlighten your eyes to understand that and know that and experience that, over time, you will see the peace of God will guard your heart And keep your mind in Christ Jesus. That is God's promise. So we see the purpose again of Jesus' words to his disciples are that they might experience peace in this world. Then he turns and he gives them a difficult promise. A difficult promise. Look look with me here. He gives another location. The first location he says is, you're going to be in me and you'll have peace there. But you're also going to be somewhere else as well. I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. So Jesus wants to remind his disciples, again, as a summary statement. He's woven these things together throughout the entirety of this sermon. He's said to them, Hey, your hearts will be tempted to be weighed down with sorrow. He's told them that the world will hate you. He's told them that they will experience sorrow and pain and hardship. He does not shy back from that or tell them, try to gloss it over or sugarcoat it. He tells them, this is a part of what it will be to follow me in this world as my ambassadors. And he does not shy away from that. He wants to remind them again here at the end of this sermon that they will experience the trials and tribulations of this life. This is a reality for all of Jesus' followers throughout this age as we wait for him to return and make all things new. Two days before this sermon, Jesus had given his disciples an extensive teaching on what the times between his comings would be like. So from the time he ascended to be with the Father till the time he comes to make all things new, he gives them a snapshot of what the world will be like. He narrated for them that these times would be marked by heightened difficulty. He said that that would be wars and societal unrest, famine, pestilence. He said that there would be persecution and there would be deception. The weight of these words would have still been ringing in the disciples' ears at, at the time of the upper room. And Jesus' words of comfort and exhortation to them would serve to stabilize their heart through these crises. Look with me at Matthew 24. Jesus, these are Jesus' words about what walking in this world will look like. He says to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. So we see deception You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of societal unrest, both in reality and the potential for them. See to it that you're not alarmed by these things. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes. And in Luke, he says pestilences in various places. All these things are like birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Because of lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. So Jesus, again, does not shy away from the reality of what walking in this world will be like. At another place in Matthew chapter 13, he had spoken a parable that the time until he comes would be like a a field in which wheat was planted and then the enemy came and planted tares and they would grow up together through this life. And so Jesus does not want us to be um, unaware or surprised by the reality that this life is marked by hardship. And this is still true for us today, right? Wars, rumors of wars, does that ring a bell with anybody, right? Do you feel the pressure that comes and the anxiety that is tempted to enter into our lives and our world and our society by the unrest that marks our world? Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, pestilences, people losing their, their, the heat of their love because the days are dark, right? This, this marks our world as well. And Jesus wants us to be certain in that that it is not outside of his purview and his, it is not outside of his uh, purposes even, that he is sovereign over it. Letter C, Jesus does not promise that his disciples will be removed from the trials, the sufferings, the hardships of life. Rather, he demonstrates that he will express his power to keep us, meaning keep our hearts, keep our minds, keep us in the midst of it. This is Jesus's prayer in John 17. As he's praying for his disciples, he says it this way specifically. He's asking his father and he says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world. That's a remarkable thought, right? Jesus says, I'm not asking you, Father, to remove them from the context in which this difficulty and hardship and sorrow and pain will occur. This is hard for us, I think, both as Westerners And I think it's hard for us in the contemporary church because I think there is a movement or a wave of this more therapeutic way of understanding the Christian faith that wants to tell us that when we follow Jesus, everything about our life is just going to go better. And Jesus does not promise us that we are going to get taken out of the hardships of life. There's nowhere that you can put your finger on in the Bible that that is the case. Actually, the opposite is true. Jesus explicitly says, I'm not asking you to take them out of this. I'm asking you to hold them through it, to be enough for them in the midst of it, to demonstrate your power over them as they walk through this. That's what Jesus prays for. So as disciples of Jesus, we are simultaneously in Christ, we see here, the recipients of his peace, and we're in the world experiencing tribulation and hardship. And so Jesus says this, by way of summarizing, I would say two of the major themes of this sermon, right? In me, you'll have peace. In the world, you'll have hardship. And then he puts the exclamation point on it. He wants you to know why you can bank your life and your trust and your faith in anything that he has to say. Why can you hang all of your hope and trust in his words? Why can you? He puts this as this last statement in their ears as he's spoken these words to them. I have overcome the world. I have all the power. I've conquered. I am victorious. I am the only one who was able to stand and face the world and overcome it. And now, because you are united with me, you can experience my life, my power, my peace as you walk through the world. So Jesus concludes his teaching to his disciples in the upper room with a statement that situates his power over all of creation. This statement roots every one of these exhortations and promises for them to not be troubled and for them to experience his peace. The disciples and we can have certainty that although we experience tribulation and trial in the world, we will not ultimately be overcome by the world. We know this because our savior, the one that we experience union with, the one we are united to, has himself overcome the world. So how does Jesus do this? I'm going to jump down to letter G. Jesus does this fully and finally through his life, death, and resurrection. And I want to highlight three particular ways that Jesus overcomes the world as an attempt for us to try to take these and ingest them and understand them. So it's not just some abstract concept of like Jesus is victorious. Yes, that is absolutely true. But how is Jesus victorious? How does Jesus overcome the world? How did Jesus in his life and his death and in his resurrection provide the power to see ultimate and final victory over sin, death, and the grave. Over all of the things that stood in the way of his purposes and his plans. All of the things that marked sinful, rebellious humanity and the curse that this created order had been subjected to. How did Jesus do that? I want to highlight three. There might be more you could put here, but three, here's three pretty important ones. The first one, Jesus overcame the world by enduring temptation and testing and won victory over the devil by refusing sin. So how did Jesus overcome the world? He was the only man who has ever existed who looked sin in the face and did not succumb to it. Who did not buckle under the pressures and the temptations and the testings of the world and its ways when satan came to him we see this in mark or matthew chapter 4 here jesus went up to the wilderness to be tested by the the devil And each time Satan came to him to offer him something, a way by which to go around God's plan or bypass the purpose that God had for him or take the easy road, so to speak. Every time Jesus stood firm and commanded the truth of God in response to temptation. He's the only person who's ever done that. Every other person who has ever lived, you and me included, has in the face of the world and its ways buckled under sin. We've buckled. We've rebelled against God, rebelled against his ways. We've chosen the flesh, the pride of life, the ways of this world, and we have succumbed to their power. Jesus did not. Look at John 14. I love this. Jesus, earlier in this sermon that we've been walking through, he tells his disciples, I will not talk much longer with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Meaning he's coming to confront me again in my death. They're going to come and try to overcome me yet again. But he has No claim on me. Jesus stood in the face of sin and temptation and stood true to the righteous purposes of God at every moment, in every thought, in every word, and in every deed of his life. All of them submitted fully to the purposes of God in his righteousness. So how did Jesus overcome the world? Jesus overcame the world because he did not succumb to it. He stood at the ways that the world seeks to evaluate things or value things or invite us into responding. And he resisted sin and the devil and walked in the ways of righteousness at every moment of his life. This is what the author of Hebrews gets at in chapter four. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness but rather one who in every respect was tempted like we are, but did not sin. That's the high priest that we have. How did Jesus overcome the world? He was tempted in every way that is common to man, and he did not sin. He did not buckle under the weight of temptation. That's the first way. The second way we see in Jesus's ministry... Jesus bound the devil's power, and he did this in his death as well by bringing the kingdom to bear in the world through manifestations of God's power, particularly expressed in demonstrations of healing and deliverance. You'll see that in Matthew chapter 12. I'm not going to read through it all, but the essence of this is when Jesus was confronted one time after casting a demon out and seeing healing expressed in the world, and the Pharisees come to him and say, hey, you're casting devils out by the devil himself. And Jesus comes back at them and says, that's absurd. A kingdom can't be divided against itself. Satan can't cast himself out by himself. Uh, the Spirit of God is the reason that I'm doing this. And if the Spirit of God comes upon you, you know, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he says, how could someone come into a a person's house in order to plunder all of his goods without binding him first? And the point that he's getting at is, in my ministry, I came to push back all of the works of darkness that the devil had uh, done in the world, everything that had been trampled and defiled in this creation, I came back to destroy its effects and push back its effects through the kingdom that I have brought. And in order to do that, I had to bind the strong man. I had to confront him and wage war against him and overcome him. And Jesus did that. We see that again in Luke 16. We see Jesus express the kingdom of God. So the second way that Jesus overcomes the world is he, through his ministry, and we'll see here in a second through his death as well, wins a decisive victory over the devil. The devil no longer has power in response or with regards to him. He has bound him and now stands victorious. The third way is that Jesus, in a very particular and specific way, casts the accuser, the devil, from the heavenly court. And he put demonic principalities to open shame by his crucifixion and his resurrection. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus We see this in Revelation 12. This is a remarkable picture of what happened through the death and the ascension of Jesus. There was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who is Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. What that means is this. One of the ways that Jesus won a decisive victory over the world through his life, death, and resurrection is now in his ascension, Jesus has cast out the one who accused you before God day and night. There is no longer any accusing voice to those who were in Christ Jesus in the presence of God any longer. There is only the voice of Jesus who has purchased all those who come to him by faith with his very blood. And there is no word that can be spoken against any of his children in his presence. That's remarkable news, right? So as you walk through the world, and face hardship, and trial, and difficulty, and your heart is tempted to be weighed down with anxiety, and despair, and shame, and fear, what would it mean for you to stand firm in the truth that, in the presence of God, there is no voice that can condemn you? There is no voice that can separate you And move you on from experiencing the full measure of God's life. You have been purchased. You have been bought. You have been saved and redeemed. And because of faith in Jesus, there is now nothing that can separate you from Him in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul gets at, I've got here in Romans chapter 8. We can have steadfast hearts in the midst of the trials of this world, because we're joined to Christ in union. He has overcome the world. Now we are empowered to overcome. This is what Paul gets at. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? So the trials that you're walking through, can they separate you from the love of God in Christ? Can distress? Can persecution? Can famine? Can nakedness? Can danger, can sword, can your own weakness separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No. In all these things, we are more than what? overcomers, more than conquerors. We now join to Jesus who has overcome the world. He's overcome sin and death and hell forever. Now that we are joined to him, we are even more than overcomers in him because of him who loved us. Paul goes on, I'm sure of this, neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul picks up what Jesus says here as Jesus draws this sermon to a conclusion. And he says, in me, you can have peace. In me, you can have the experience of the love of my Father. In me, you can have joy to its fullness. Though you have tribulation and trial and distress and nakedness and famine and persecution and sword and sorrow and missed expectations, though you have all those things, take heart, I have overcome the world. And if you are in me, you are more than conquerors through jesus christ who loved you that's our hope that's our trust that's our confidence that's how jesus brings this all to a closure and puts an exclamation point on the end of this glorious sermon he stands before his disciples and says why can you take heart why in the world, when you are walking through hardship and sorrow and suffering and pain, why in the world could you possibly take heart? Jesus says, because I've overcome it. Yeah. Amen. And your hope can be in me. Yeah. And how Jesus overcomes the world is by laying down his life, yeah. by pouring his life out to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we celebrate that every single week when we come to the table of fellowship together. And we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the only way that we can have peace with God and the only hope that we can have to take heart In this world that is full of hardship and sorrow and suffering. And so if you believe in that, if you put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone, you're a Christian and we want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. The servers can come on forward now. The way we take communion at Redeemer Fellowship is you take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup. We'll have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up here in the front, in the middle, and up in the balcony. And we also have a gluten-free station to my right over here. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, you don't put your hope in him, he is not your source of life. You have not um, surrendered your life to him in faith. We ask that you not come and take this meal with us. Um, This meal is a... A signifier. It's a signifier of a reality that it's through the death of Jesus that we have peace with God. And so we're going to come and celebrate that. But if that's not your hope, if that, you don't put your faith in Jesus, don't feel the pressure to come and take this meal. We ask that you stay in your seat. Um, we're really glad you're here. Uh, if, you, if you need language for what it might sound like to pray or something like that, we've got cards in the seat back in front of you. With some prayers on it, if 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 that's helpful to you. Uh, But for those of you who are receiving, we'll come forward and receive. We'll also respond in song, and like we do every week, we will uh, we have people in the in the service that would love to pray with and for you. If there's anything that you need prayer for, you want somebody to stand and ask the Lord to do in your in your life. You want to experience more of God's peace. There's You need healing in your body or you just long for God to speak to you or move uh, in your life. We have people that would love to pray with and for you. So we respond in those ways. I'm gonna pray for us now and then you can come forward and receive when you're ready. Father, we do just thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that it is our only hope. We thank you that... When you exhort us to take heart in this world, you don't just tell us to like grit our teeth or endure it or bear it up in our own strength because you know we can't do that. Jesus, you point us to yourself and you remind us that you have overcome the world. So this morning, even as we come to the table, would you show us again the victorious one? Would you show us again that you have conquered sin, death, the grave. You have conquered sickness and sorrow. God, you are victorious and we look for the day when you will come and make all things new. And we declare even this morning through this meal that this is our only hope. And like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we do this both remembering when you made the way for us, and we do it looking forward to the day when you will make all things new. God, so would you minister in our midst even now? Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you move? Would you impress upon our hearts the truth of of who Jesus is? Would you sustain us? Would you release your peace? I ask all of these things, In Jesus' great name, amen.